Well, who knew that going for your daily run or gym session might actually be a tool for better gut health? Today, we look at a study which demonstrates this phenomenon. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Broccoli Roast. You guys know that I've been banging on about the link between positive exercise habits and good gut health. The two have been, so far, in many observational studies, commonly seen in a seemingly congruent relationship. More active people had healthier gut microbiomes. But taking this theory a step further, a new study has actually used exercise as an interventional stimulus to see whether it actually induced positive changes to gut bacteria. So essentially looking at the idea that exercise might actually cause increases in beneficial gut microbes within the digestive tract. In order to do this, researchers took 32 lean and obese people who were living a sedentary lifestyle and hadn't been exposed to antibiotics for the three months prior. They subjected them to six weeks of supervised endurance-based exercise training on a program of three times per week, three th sessions per week, somewhat moderate if you ask me. The intensity of the training increased over time before the program ensued, after six weeks, and then six weeks later, after returning to a sedentary lifestyle, the subjects in the name of science donated their poo for testing to see whether or not they had experienced changes in their gut microbiome. Now, importantly, the subjects had dietary controls in place prior to each collection to rule out as much as possible the effect of diet on the test results. Now, incredibly, the analysis of the participants' stool samples revealed that, yes, indeed, exercise seemed to induce positive changes in gut bacteria. And get this, it only happened in the lean individuals, not the obese. Now, the researchers found increases in short-chain fatty acids, things like butyrate, a sign of beneficial microbe metabolism, uh, in the stool analysis of the lean individuals on the exercise program, whilst in the obese people's samples, they did not find any increase at all in those same metabolic products. The researchers also noted that exercise-induced shifts in metabolic output of the microbiota paralleled changes in bacterial genes and taxa capable of short-chain fatty acid production, SCFA, which is science jargon for the results showed an increased potential output and increased actual output of these short-chain fatty acids by the microbiome. Now, what was interesting to note is that the exercise-induced changes in the microbiota were, quote, largely reversed once exercise training ceased, uh, meaning that only when exercise is sustained and maintained as part of your routine can you expect it to contribute to your gut health, which is not surprising considering what we know of the gut microbiome and how quickly it adapts. This is what we talked about in the gut movie. It changes to new stimuli such as diet and of course now we know exercise as well. Um, I'd love to pass this off to you guys. Do you exercise? What sort of exercise do you do? Let me know in the comments below uh, or on socials and I also want to know if you think exercise is enough to look after your gut health on its own. My guest today is Steph Flo, a nutritionist specializing in athletic performance with a strong emphasis on gut health. We discussed the study itself. Seth pointed out the obvious shortcomings of such an investigation, largely centered around the fact that there were, simply put, not enough controls in place to actually get high quality results. This is one of the biggest shortcomings, though, of studying diet in general. You guys have heard, about, heard me speak about this. 
Um, the fact that it is, you, you can't bottle up 100 people into a building for six weeks, control their stress levels, control what they're exposed to chemically and dietarily. Uh, long story short, everybody agrees exercise is great for you. Whether it truly impacts your gut health, we'll have to wait and see. I've been writing about this for ages. My personal theory is that the lactic acid produced during exercise may actually nourish the lactic acid loving microbes in the gut. And I'm still waiting for someone to test this theory, but until then, I don't know. So here's a conversation that Steph and I had regarding fat adaptation and performance, gut health and more. This conversation is actually from the Gut Healing Summit, now called the Gut Healing Series online course, which you guys should check out. Um, you can get it for a super special price over at the link of the day, kalebrock.com.au forward slash really interesting. Just a special note before we start guys, don't forget I am running the Gut Summit, a live one day event all about your gut health. I'm bringing it to Perth, Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide, and potentially Brisbane. If you want to know any more about that, head to kalebrock.com.au forward slash gut summit and make sure you're on the mailing list. Make sure you subscribe to this channel subscribe to my Instagram or follow me on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. Make sure you are somehow in touch with me when we announce the final dates and tickets uh, for those events. We currently have Perth available November 3rd, 2018. Uh, tickets are going fast, so make sure you get them now. It's the Gut Summit, a live one-day event all about your gut health. Enjoy the show. So what science is finding now is that the gut is the foundation of the immune system. We're seeing huge advancements in medicine. We are actually the normal. The ones that are sick out there are the abnormal. You've got to remember that if you're cooking food, you want to love it. When I go to prepare something, it becomes magical. Within the gut lining, we've got hundreds and thousands of neural networks that are completely intertwined. It's filtering the blood, so yes, it will be overworked. And when the liver's overworked, then, then that causes issues with the hormones. And that's really where the rubber hits the road, and that's where all this information becomes important. Hey guys, this is Helen Patteron. Hi, I'm Dr. Maggie Smith. Hi, this is Dr. Damien Christoph. Dr. Andrea Huddleston here. I can't wait to be sharing information about the gut and brain connection. About gut health for kids and teenagers. Women's health, hormones, and its relationship to your gut at the upcoming Gut Summit. I hope to see you there. I'll see you there. Can't wait to see you there. Your whole body lights up. Now, <laughs> thank you. Steph Lowe, welcome to the Gut Healing Summit. Thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited to have you. Today we're going to talk a lot about uh, sports nutrition and how gut health can really have a big impact on the athletic performance and also, also athletes because I think one of the biggest things and I want to jump into it straight away when we talk about limiting carbohydrates or certain carbohydrates yeah. that is um, athletes tend to get a little nervous because we've typically been taught and we were talking about this before that uh, carbohydrate loading and all this stuff is, is still quite prevalent mm. as a theory and people worry that they're not going to have energy anymore to perform. Yeah. So can you sort of go into that from your perspective as someone who's sort of practicing a, a different approach with that? Yeah, definitely. So you're right. Like it's a huge myth in the sports space. And I think that's what's really important for us to break down. You know, we were told for 
I think, five decades that we needed this huge amount of carbohydrates to perform and certainly that we had to take part in these ridiculous carbohydrate loading protocols. Like, just to share a bit more detail about what they advise us, did you know it's 7 to 10 grams of carbohydrate per kilogram body weight? Okay, so a, a 100 kilogram male, yep. for instance, which is not uncommon in certain sports, would need 700, 700 grams of carbohydrate Yes, in a day. In a day. Which is huge. That is a ridiculous volume of food. Like... The guidelines then go on to say that it has to come from food like white bread, orange juice, lollies, <laughs> and Coke, Coca-Cola, because essentially if you're eating whole food carbohydrates with the fiber and the nutrients, you're full. You couldn't which eat is that much. normally what you would want, right? <laughs> yeah. But to get that much volume in, they're advising it comes from, it's not food, yeah. and simple sugars, and inflammatory ingredients. And if we really use common sense, how is that going to help your performance? Mm. I mean, the science of carbohydrate loading is based on very old research that shows us we get a 1% to 2% increase in performance by an exercise taper, so decreasing your training and increasing your carbohydrates. But 1% to 2%, I mean, you can get so much more by being a fat-adapted athlete and controlling your inflammation. So certainly avoiding foods like the refined carbohydrates and sugars. So, you know, you only need to use common sense to understand that it's BS. And I think that's what we really need to try and show people. When they actually understand the science, they know that it's the wrong thing to do. I suppose consuming that many empty calories and processed carbohydrates is going to naturally lead to a lot of gastrointestinal issues. Definitely. Is this like a common thing? And I also want to ask, is this still the theory taught at leading institutions who are, who are spewing out um, dietitians and sports nutritionists? So they're all coming out with these ideas still. Yeah, I mean, it's still in the textbooks. You pick up a sports nutrition textbook that's probably written by Louise Burke. Like, don't get me wrong, she's done some amazing work in our space, but the guidelines are still very industry-driven, so that vested interest. We know that the Dietetics Association in Australia is sponsored by Kellogg's and Nestle, so there's that huge vested interest between then what the guidelines are, right? And so, yeah, the dietitians or the nutrition students have to sit through this sports nutrition subject where they're fed this rubbish mm. and I think these days like a lot of nutrition students are much more savvy so it's a good thing they know that it's wrong but they still have to be tested on it and those that don't know differently or those that go on to practice as a dietitian have to regurgitate that information mm. so yes it's still on the AIS the Australian Institute of Sport website <laughs> which is again an absolute crime and there's plenty of dietitians that unfortunately would otherwise be disbarred mm. if they said what I'm saying. But I think slowly but surely we'll see some changes there. And I can't wait until we have a textbook that teaches our students and our athletes real food and optimizing your metabolism. Mm. So going back to my other question, mm. consuming all that processed food, consuming truckloads of gluten with the pasta and the mm -hmm. white breads and stuff, 
that's obviously leading to a lot of GI issues in our athletes. Absolutely. And people think that's like a normal part of sport. Like we work with a lot of Ironman athletes and there's always stories and pardon me if this gets a little bit gruesome, (laughs) but there's literally stories of people, one, vomiting the entire length of the marathon. So can you imagine spewing up for 42 Ks after you've done 180 Ks on the bike and a nearly a 4K swim? Then there are stories of people that spend most of their run in the bushes. Mm. I've heard stories of professional athletes that have literally pooed their pants and then had to finish the race and go and have an interview because they've like placed, right? They might have come first, second or third. They've got this towel wrapped around their waist, (laughs) poo in their lycra because their guts have been so destroyed Mm. by these, one, conventional guidelines two ridiculously high volumes of carbohydrates and refined sugars and three the stress and the inflammation that that creates so yeah i mean it's it's thought of as being a part of the sport when it's actually so avoidable one thing i want to talk about there you you obviously mentioned iron man um which is traditionally a very sort of leans itself towards something like a fat adapted um system because it's so um long distance aerobic i suppose in nature when it comes to the differences between aerobic mm. and the more anaerobic styles of training, so things like interval training or high intensity like CrossFit yeah. surfing, for instance, is there a big difference in terms of how much, how many carbohydrates we need? Yeah. And, and I suppose in that question, we can also talk about the optimal sources of those mm-hmm. carbohydrates as well. Yeah, definitely. And I love this question, but just to backtrack a little bit, you know that Ironman is aerobic and it should be fueled on fat. But the industry encourages, you know, Gatorade and pasta and sports gels, Mm. which creates a sugar burning environment. So your body won't burn fat when there's this this presence of sugar, right? So to us, it makes sense that you should be fat adapted to do long distance sports and not just Ironman, obviously, but anything long distance. But the industry is telling us the exact opposite. So there's this brainwashing that Mm. is just rife through these sports. So... But that's what we want to think about. We need to think about the energy system. So if the type of activity is predominantly an aerobic activity, so, you know, low to moderate heart rate, then it should be fueled on fat. Mm. So we actually need a lot less carbohydrates. But athletes get caught up in distance. Everyone says to me, oh, it's a 10-hour Ironman or I'm going to be out there 15 hours. In their mind, this distance creates this stress Mm. that they're going to run out of fuel and therefore they need to you know, smash the carbs, but it's not the distance. It's the aerobics, sorry, it's the energy system, Mm -hmm. which is the intensity. So aerobic should be fat burning. So you don't want to eat excess carbohydrates because you'll totally turn off that process. And then anaerobic, which is intervals like surfing, like CrossFit, sprinting, and so on. You do need more carbohydrates because it's glycolytic in nature you know Mm. your body's relying on a greater proportion of glycogen which is the carbohydrate that we store in the muscle energy systems don't work in isolation though people think that you're just aerobic or you're just anaerobic which is not how the human body works it's a seesaw so you know you're either a lot aerobic and a small amount anaerobic you might be 50 50 or it might be the other way around they work in conjunction and that's important to remember as well Because the more glycolytic you are, the more carbohydrates Mm. you need. So it's a sliding scale. But of course, we're not talking about pastas and Gatorades and sports gels, right? 
when I talk about carbs, I'm very careful to split them into two groups. And I think this is really important for our athletes to know, and certainly our audience in general, because carbohydrates are non-starchy veggies. And a lot of people don't know that. Mm. Carbohydrates are fruit, which of course we still need to moderate our intake of, but they can have their place, particularly for those that have a higher output and certainly those that are more glycolytic in nature, more anaerobic in nature. Um, Carbohydrates are found in things like sweet potato, which I think is a great, um, or has its place for athletes. But then obviously the other side are the refined carbohydrates, which we need to minimize, if not eliminate. And I think that's really important. You know, I was at a seminar yesterday and they were talking about carbohydrates as a whole. And basically the comment was made like, you know, I, I haven't eaten carbohydrates this year. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I could see like everyone in the audience starting to think about eating no carbohydrates, which isn't the answer. Mm. You know, it's not about no carbohydrates. I mean, obviously non-starchy veggies should make up the bulk of our plate. Yeah. So we have to be really careful when we talk about this macronutrient group as a whole. Whole food carbohydrates, of course, and then they have their place based on the type of activity that you do. I suppose there's a, a bit of a misconception with, you know, there's a lot of uh, LCHF now, so mm. low-carb, high-fat diets, but again, what a lot of people aren't realising is that even though it's called that, it's actually still majority carbohydrate. It's just being very selective about the carbohydrates that you're consuming. So things like a lot of vegetables, mm. you know, which are all carbohydrates. So you mm. mentioned sweet potato. Mm. Um, what are some other really good options for carbohydrates? And do things like um, you gluten-free grains come into it? It's so like quinoa, mm. rice, those things. Are they quite good as well? I think that's very individual. Like personally, I would prefer people prioritize mostly, you know, vegetables mm. and a small amount of fruit. Maybe, you know, definitely berries, the occasional um, banana, for example, if it's like a post-training muscle glycogen replenishment type food, which would potentially suit an athlete after that interval session or that surfing morning and things like that. That's again, very individual to answer your question though. I think quinoa and rice is an option Mm. for those that have really good gut health um, and have obviously tested their response to that. In essence, though, like you wouldn't need more than half a cup. Yeah. Like I say this to my athletes, my clients, it's not a quinoa salad. It's some quinoa in your salad. So you want to make sure those ratios are right. Okay. So with that, um, you're looking for the majority of the plate to be vegetables, yeah. a little bit of protein as well, mm. and then just a little bit of carbohydrate. Well, we have a bit a build your plate rule. So we want to have at least two cups of non-starchy veggies with every meal. So non-starchies are most green vegetables, but it's still really important to have the rainbow, we say. So obviously capsicums and mushrooms and tomatoes and all those beautiful colours as well. So two cups of non-starchies. We want about a palm-sized piece of protein. So it would be two to three eggs or it would be, you know, 120 or 150 grams of an animal protein, if that's the personal preference, of course. Then we look for the good fats, so the healthy fats. So one to two portions of healthy fats, such as avocado, nuts and seeds, coconut oil, grass-fed butter, where a portion is about 30 grams. So one to two portions. Then it's carbohydrates to the plate last. But, you know, there's a lot of our meals that don't need that added um, complex carbohydrate, Mm -hmm. I should say. Um, If we're aerobic in nature, if we're more sedentary, we can get all of our nutrition from the non-starchy proteins and good fats and the nutrient timing, which is the consumption of the complex carbohydrates post-training 
is when we've used that aerobic and energy system. So we're thinking about what we need to put back in. How long is the post-training window? How long? At what time does post-training become yeah, normal time? That's a good question because people always say like, oh, I exercise in the morning, so I'm having this raw cake this <laughs> afternoon with dates and honey. And yeah. No, it's about an hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. so we know that our glycogen resynthase enzymes are super active for about 60 minutes after a high-intensity exercise session. So pun the pun, but it's the best way to have your cake and eat it too, because you utilize those sugars really well in that window. They're absorbed. They go pretty much straight to replace muscle glycogen and not off towards fat storage, which they can definitely do in times of more sedentary phases. So one hour, um, and that's if it's an anaerobic session. Okay. So if it's an aerobic session and particularly if you're more fat adapted, There's no real hard and fast rule. You know, you can extend your fat adaptation by not eating straight away. And a lot of people actually get more benefits out of this because of the state that our digestion is in. As you know, digestion is very parasympathetic, which means, you know, we need to be in that that relaxed state to be able to digest and assimilate and absorb nutrients. Whereas exercise is very sympathetic. So if we literally bowl up to the door, finish training and start putting food in our mouth, we're not going to digest that food, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to have potentially poor nutrient absorption, bloating and the other more common GI symptoms. So waiting some time to allow your body to switch over to that rest and digest parasympathetic state can be really beneficial. Yeah. There's a lot of um, move towards, you know, these um, processed post-workout and pre-workout foods and powders and gels and liquids and all this sort of stuff. I'm assuming that most of those aren't really conducive to um, one, good gut health, because Mm. this is the topic of today, but two, do they really actually improve performance? Yeah. And I I think you know the answer to this. It's it's (laughs) a massive marketing campaign where, you know, we're driven to believe we need this scientific experiment to increase our recovery and performance. I mean, nothing beats real food. Mm. And, you know, even when it comes to, you know, I hate to mention brands, but I can't resist Gatorade, you know, they talk about these electrolytes and these carbohydrates, but why does it need to come from a lab? (laughs) You know, we can educate ourselves to work out where to get those whole foods from. You know, people are actually really surprised to learn that Lemon is our highest electrolyte-containing fruit. And for a lot of people, Himalayan salt can be enough to replenish post-training. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's a really important education piece because we don't need to be spending our money on these refined science experiments to perform well. They're certainly not good for our athletic longevity, which is what I think it should be all about. I mean, I'm all for performance. I think that's excellent. But don't really want to be surfing forever or doing an Ironman forever or lifting, you know, doing a CrossFit Open forever. So we need to think about what we're putting in our mouth because that creates our longevity. Do you have a good recipe for an electrolyte replacing drink? I think that's something very popular. When I was playing mm. football uh, back, in, back in my high you school days. Football. I was a footy player. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, they used to bring out oranges at half time. Yeah. And, you know, later on when I was doing um, surf competitions, I would um, put a little bit of lemon mm-hmm. and Himalayan salt in, in my water for mm-hmm. that reason. Do you have a good recipe for people? 
that yeah. gut friendly recipe i suppose yeah yeah definitely i mean simply doing like the juice of a full lemon and a quarter teaspoon of himalayan salt can be enough for a lot of people i mean sweat rates and sodium losses in a sweat rate is very individual so you know if it's it's someone that's experiencing challenges with something like cramping then it's obvious they need a little bit more support but most of us you know can do fine on the simple lemon and salt because our bodies are very clever right at the start of the year or the start of the season where it's either hot or we're just getting back into our training our body will dump a lot of salt mm. but it figures it out very quickly that that's not the right idea you know our body's role is homeostasis right so we adapt as we get used to being exposed to those hot climates or as we get into the season where obviously we're becoming more acclimatized to what we're doing and we don't lose as much mm. so we don't therefore necessarily need as much but if it's an athlete that might need a little bit more of a a boost post training maybe they're not having access to um, their next meal straight away uh, half a teaspoon or a teaspoon of rice malt syrup in that electrolyte mix yeah. can give them just a, a touch of um, carbohydrate but I rarely find that necessary because we want to prioritize whole food mm. so our role as an athlete or someone that exercises is to make sure that we factor in the ability to have time and and you know the ability to eat well to accelerate our recovery one big factor with the gut health equation with with a lot of athletes is they often come to it in dire straits yeah. so for instance you know mid-season um do you have a way that they can actually start implementing these ideas without necessarily going into a detox reaction without necessarily hindering performance for one to two weeks while they do mm. a bit of healing because mm. i know that if we're going something as far as you know gaps or something yeah. um it can be quite uh, intense on the body and it can impact energy levels for a while um is there a softer way that athletes can lean into it and then is it you know better for them to actually focus on those sort of things um off season yeah look i think if there's a you know, the ability to start in the off season, then that is the best time, particularly if it's someone that's very much a conventional sugar burner and they will identify with, you know, things like being hungry every two hours, needing to take sports nutrition, you know, pretty much straight away when they're training and racing, having the potential for gastrointestinal distress. Like these are the signs that you can really identify. Oh, actually I am a sugar burner. Let's do something about this. So they're going to be the ones that find it the hardest. It'll take four to seven days to switch over from burning sugar to burning fat. So in that time, yes, they can feel fatigued, sluggish. They can have cravings. Their performance will certainly be down. So if you've got a race or a time trial or some heavy training, it's really not the best time. So the off season can allow you to start more gently. And the first step for everyone is to just eat real food. You know, we don't talk about like deeper levels of gut health or probiotics for at least a month. We want someone to minimum, you know, four weeks mm. to start to strip out the refined carbohydrates and sugars start to build the plate in the way that we just discussed. So non-starchy proteins, good fats, complex carbohydrates after a high intensity session. And then, you know, most people, most athletes are fairly compliant. They are usually pretty good at sort of diving in and being able to stick to that. Um, it's not soft for everybody, 
but most of them want to kind of get it done mm. and be able to switch over into that fat burning metabolism and experience all the amazing benefits that you do experience not only day to day but certainly in training and racing so when it comes to identifying what an athlete needs in terms of their gut health mm. um what's the best place for you guys to start so obviously four weeks real food yeah. allow the body to sort of try and come into some sort of homeostasis mm. and then if there are still issues um being presented what's the first step for you to actually um work out what they need yeah so we like to do um stool testing with as many athletes as we can particularly because you know you know this like gut health has become a household name which yeah. i think is amazing but what it's led to is people self-subscribing or self-prescribing mm -hmm. and creating more problems, right? So kombucha is a fascinating example. Like it's, it's such a on-trend thing, right? And we know it's really high in lactobacillus. Mm. And some people drink a kombucha every day and create an overgrowth of lactobacillus and, then, and you know, get worse or not and address the problem necessarily. So with testing, when you do a stool test and uh, we work with Bioscreen Medical here in Australia, they will analyze the, the person's gut. So we'll be able to identify where the deficiencies are. Mm -hmm. So from that information, we can then, you know, obviously prescribe the athlete exactly what they need. And I think that's really important. I mean, the test costs, you know, 350 to $500, depending on which one you do. But you know what? Athletes spend five to $10,000 on a bike to get faster mm. when they might balk at the idea of a $350 test. But I think, you know, our perspective is wrong. Performance is going to start in your gut. So if you don't know what's going on and if you don't know how to address that properly, then you're wasting your money on that expensive bike. You absolutely are. So we, we start with testing wherever possible and then with that information, we educate the client as to their current gut health status. So most people like learn some pretty nasty things, unfortunately. <laughs> Even those that might have already started a gut health protocol, you know, unfortunately, if the environment's wrong, they can mm. be putting probiotics in and even, you know, going down the, the bone broth route. Um, but it's not working because there's a pathogen like a strep overgrowth or candida or mm -hmm. something like that. So they end up sort of, you know, fighting this losing battle. So the information is so powerful so they can get rid of the pathogens that are going to be getting in the way of improving their gut health and then treat it really effectively. What's the most common sort of uh, thing you see with athletes uh, in terms of their gut health, positive or negative? No, it's negative. Yeah. Like really, honestly, a lot of people that come to see us at the natural nutritionist are quite savvy. So they're not just being taught about real food. You know, they yeah. might've already been doing that. They might already be doing LCHF, um, but they still can't get it right. They're doing their probiotics. They're probably even taking culture wellness but we get their results back and they've got no lactobacilla and no bifidobacteria, which is crazy. I mean, it's not when you understand what it takes to regrow those guys, but they get a shock because they've been doing probiotics for months or years. Mm -hmm. And that's the reality. You know, if you haven't got that right internal environment, and this is where LCHF can go wrong as well. They pull out all the resistant starch. Yeah. So they don't yeah. have the food for the good bacteria. I hate using the word good, the beneficial bacteria. They don't have the, the food for the beneficial bacteria. So they're actually too low carb and then they can't inoculate their gut anymore. Yeah. So they go round and round in circles. So it's really important to identify if that's going on. 
if someone can't get a good foothold in terms of their beneficial bacteria, mm. um, getting that step up in their microbiome, mm. what do you do? I mean, do you just take more probiotics? No. Do you just add in more prebiotics? What's the deal? It really depends on the individual, mm. and that's why you, you, you work with a practitioner that understands those results. But essentially, I always start with their constitution. So what are their bacteroides is where we start. So we know that the ideal human breakdown is you know 90 to 95 percent and five different strains unfortunately i rarely see that so in that sort of instance we've got to go right back to looking at the diet um you know lots of bone broths either you know colostrum or aloe vera depending on the individual and look at trying to improve that constitution first so that's where we're going to get most of the benefits but if the athlete has an overgrowth of candida or strep, we've got to fix that first mm. because it's that old crowding out principle. Like I love Kirsty Worth's analogy about the house, right? If all the rooms are full of the good bacteria, then there's no space for the bad guys. But if all the rooms are full of the bad guys, then what happens? There's no room for the good guys. So the overgrowth need to be addressed first mm -hmm. so that we can then start to create space for the beneficial bacteria to live inside. Is that a short-term approach until the bad guys have gone? Or do you keep, you know, perhaps you're taking botanical antifungals or mm. botanical antimicrobials. Mm -hmm. How long do you do that? Is it, you mm. know, for a month after symptoms have gone or? How long is a piece of string? I think, <laughs> you know, the, it depends on the levels. Like, yeah. and that's what's another fantastic thing about uh, Bioscreen is you know how big the overgrowth is. Mm. You know, a lot of the tests that people do at their GP or even in some of the more basic functional pathology labs, you just get candida yeah. or you just get strep. And it's like, well, well how much? Mm. So, you know, obviously the degree of overgrowth shapes the length of the treatment protocol. So it could be three months, it could be six months. But, you know, you can definitely still add in the beneficial bacteria at the same time. It doesn't have to happen in stage one and then stage two, but you need to know what to add back in rather than just, you know, stabbing in the dark yeah. and drinking too much kombucha, for example. <laughs> yeah. Which is easy to do. I've, yeah. I've seen it happen before. Yeah. Um, you mentioned resistant starch mm -hmm. there before, mm -hmm. and this is something that's actually caused, I suppose, quite a bit of conjecture amongst even guests on the summit. Really? Yeah. Which mm. has been interesting. Um, what are your favorite sources of resistant starch? Yeah. And I suppose, how do you work out how much is enough and how much is too much mm. for athletes who are trying to become fat adapted, for instance? Yeah. So we, we still encourage, well, let's start from the top. So resistant starch, some examples are things like the cooked and cooled white potato, cooked and cooled white rice, green banana flour. Essentially, they're our top three. Mm -hmm. I still try to encourage the client or the individual to consume that resistant starch post-training. I think that is going to be at least a good habit for them to get into. Yeah. So we know that resistant starch essentially bypasses digestion. So it's not going to have the insulin spiking effect of other carbohydrates. But when you're first experimenting and you don't know how much to have, you obviously don't want to overconsume that carbohydrate because it can impact your metabolic goals. Mm. So in general, we, we start very gradual. And it's the same with probiotics. You know, it's why you don't dive in the deep end drinking a bottle of kombucha every day. You know, you, you want to start from the very 
bottom and gradually increase to be able to identify your symptoms. So resistant starch is quite the same. You know, you might start with a tablespoon of cooked and cooled white potato and have a look at, you know, any other responses in terms of things like your satiety. So Mm. has that meal changed your satiety? Are you still getting your five hours or are you hungrier earlier, for example? Do you have any sudden digestive symptoms? Like I'm thinking of a client I'm working with at the moment. She's got a bit of a parasite problem and we did very much, you know, ketosis for the first phase to try and get rid of any of the food for the parasites to to thrive on, but to also get her burning fat because Mm. we know that can really be beneficial in that kind of environment. And then she was feeling amazing. She moved into the next phase where we were like, all right, let's try some resistant starch. And she just regressed. Mm. So it was pretty clear to us that she wasn't quite ready. So there's no black or white answer and there rarely is in the nutrition space, which can be confusing. But that's why I think it's really important to empower the individual. That's why summits like what you're doing are amazing because you need to have the ability to understand your body and work with a practitioner by all means, but tweak, you know, trial and error is key. With ketosis, Mm. there's a shift now uh, where people are trying to enter ketosis synthetically. I thought you were going to ask me this. By by (laughs) taking supplements, um, exogenous ketones. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I have a few thoughts on this. And I have been thinking about it a lot in the last six months since there's been that boom in Australia, as I know you've seen. My biggest problem is that it's, again, that magic pill solution that we're so used to looking for in the health and wellness space. And there is no magic pill. Like, if I had a magic pill, I mean, I'd probably still work, but I'd potentially have, like, a house on some, you know, island that I owned, you know. If there was a magic pill, we'd all be well, Right. So there is no magic pill. So we need to stop being so lazy when we can create ketosis by optimizing our metabolism with those food and lifestyle strategies. So that's the first thing that bothers me. Secondly, we need to think about how the human body works, right? When do we ever have high carbohydrates and high ketones? It doesn't exist in human physiology. They are always on a seesaw. Except if you've got ketoacidosis, which is a disease-like state. Yes. For instance. So if someone does have high blood sugar and high ketones, that could potentially be... Correct. Dangerous. Yeah, exactly. So, But in a healthy individual, they work on a seesaw. Mm. So if you've got lots of carbs and sugars circulating, you'll have no ketones. Converse or inverse. And I think the exogenous ketones don't make people understand that so i've read the guidelines that they give you those handbooks that they hand out and there's 200 or more grams of carbohydrates per day in there Mm. most people eating 200 grams of carbs a day are not going to be in ketosis so of course they need this exogenous product but i don't think that's the right solution thirdly There's a lot of research to show that if you're always in ketosis, you will blunt your glycolytic ability. You will get slow. Okay. So you get slow as in you can't burn sugar as well? Is that? Yeah. You can't burn sugar at those top levels, which you need, like Mm. for short intervals, obviously, or for a race day scenario, not week in, week out. So the only place I see them working, potentially, I mean, obviously therapeutic benefit aside, is for maybe like a two-week protocol to try out your response to them mm-hmm. and have a look if you know that does help with things like appetite regulation to start the journey. Um, but they definitely need to be cycled. 
and we can't forget about the importance of changing what we put in our mouth. Yeah, which is, you're obviously, you're advocating a whole foods diet. LCHF. LCHF, yeah. yeah. Mm. So with the low-carb thing, mm. um, how, in terms of grams, yeah. um, how do you work out, I know you said 200 grams is probably too much. Yeah. Um, how do you work out what's going to work for the person? Um, obviously, 7 to 10 grams <laughs> per kilogram of carb of body weight is probably too much. <laughs> no, no deal. No deal on the carb loading. So essentially, LCHF is a spectrum, and this is important to discuss because it has therapeutic do- uh, benefits. 20 grams a day would be amazing for someone with metabolic syndrome, diabetes, um, cancer, to help with that therapeutic benefits. Um but anyone that's more than sedentary and certainly active will need more. So there's a bit of a, a process that we follow. Mm-hmm. You know, no more than 150 grams a day, and that would be a rarity. That would usually be in a male that's lean and metabolically healthy and very active. Mm-hmm. And then 100 grams a day would be where we would sort of start someone that's moving from the food pyramid, which is 600 grams a day. So we get them to still have, it feels like enough, it does, when you're filling your plate with lots of non-starchy proteins and good fats. Mm -hmm. But then we work at a percentage. So in general, it's 15 to 20% of your daily calories. So that's how we can scale it to the individual. I want everyone to remember this though. Your carbohydrate requirements are always relative to your exercise output or your level of activity. Mm-hmm. On more sedentary days, you need less. On glycolytic days, you need more. So there is not one number that you will stick to every day. Nutrition needs to be periodized. Like you would know this, on days when you're surfing, tell me you don't have more carbs than on, day when, on days that when you're more sedentary. The day after is when I crave. Yeah, if I right. Have a huge surf one day. Mm. The day after is when I'm, I'm naturally craving more yeah. food. And yeah. so you've worked that out. Yeah. And that makes sense though. Like. We're too used to these nutrition plans that are 1,200 calories a day and the same food every day for 12 weeks or whatever it might be. That's not how the human body works. Mm. We're more sedentary. We need less carbs, higher intensity, more carbs. When it comes to measuring those carbohydrates, Mm. are you measuring, are you like putting 20 grams of sweet potato in a thing or are you um, looking at nutrition charts and saying how much carbohydrate is actually in this potato and working that out? Because obviously when you have a whole potato... Mm. A lot of it's water, a lot of it's, you know... Fiber. Yeah, fiber. Yeah. How do you work it out? Are you going on total weight or specifics? Uh, more on specifics. Like, okay. I, I mean, most people hate it initially, but something like a MyFitnessPal or an Easy Diet Diary, I think, is really powerful in the first few weeks because, like I said earlier, people don't even know that um, vegetables are carbohydrates, mm. let alone that avocados and almonds contain carbohydrates. So... You know, whilst I don't ever encourage that obsessive calorie counting, Mm -hmm. obviously, I still think it's really important for everyone to be aware of what foods are made of. You know, there are some examples where a food is one macronutrient, like coconut oil, for example. (laughs) Struggling there. Yeah, but not not many, you know, obviously, (laughs) even when you're eating... Um, chicken thighs you're mm. having protein and fats you know yeah. so we've got to make sure that we're aware of where we're getting our macronutrients from so logging can be really powerful and beyond that i like satiety to be that yeah. biggest indicator you don't need to count if you're full for five hours or more if you're not waking up hungry if you can do an hour or two or two and a half of fasted aerobic training yeah. 
all the signs are pretty positive and you know that you've landed in that intuitive place. Well, I was going to say, my next question was, how do you know yeah. that you're arriving in a, a really... So someone, let's say, doesn't want to do the testing. Someone yeah. like me, I, I love to rely on... on intuition. On intuition and yeah. cues that I'm getting from my performance and response to things. Um, are there any other major mm. sort of things to look out for to know that you're actually uh, on point? Definitely. And I'm like you. I'm not a data kind of yeah. girl. So the thought of like having to like log anything gives me like just the boards. <laughs> yeah. um, athletes are very different though. Like a lot of A-type people do like data. So that's great. You find what works for the individual. But essentially the biggest thing you'll notice immediately is that sense of satiety. A sugar burning metabolism needs sugar every two hours to keep that blood sugar roller coaster going. So it is life changing for people to finally cut the ties to their appetite and no longer have to carry, you know, the muesli bar in their bag in case they get hungry in 90 minutes, which is what most of us have done when mm. we've come from a calorie counting, low fat or food pyramid background where it is high carb, low fat. So they're not hungry for five hours and they can't believe it for the first time in their life. They are no longer bound by their appetite. It mm. is life changing to a lot of people particularly those that have always dieted and don't have the best relationship with food. So satiety is number one. Fasted training is definitely number two. So our sugar burning athletes will bonk after 45 minutes. You know, they'll need to pull over and grab a Gatorade essentially. So when you can do aerobic, so lower intensity on you know, water and your natural electrolytes only for a couple of hours, another really good sign. Mm -hmm. Um, that's an evolution, you know, you won't start there. So, you know, please don't try and do two and a half hours <laughs> fasted straight away, like do 30 minutes, do yeah. 45, like it's an evolution, like everything. Um, but, you know, being able to reach that point tells you a lot. Um, and I think in line with that would be, you know, extending your overnight fast, mm. decreasing your um, eating window. These sorts of strategies are really good signs. When you don't get hangry, when you don't fall asleep after lunch, when you don't need that 3.30-itis coffee, sugar, yeah. vending machine, <laughs> so many amazing benefits. Yeah. Where can people find out more about you? I'm sure um, I know there are a lot of surfers watching this yeah. um, and I'm sure there are a lot of other athletes as well. How can they get in touch Absolutely. With you? So we're at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au and on social media it's The Natural Nutritionist.